Let's pray, and we'll jump into our lesson for this morning. God, it is a blessing to be together as a church family, to be with your people. It's a blessing to be able to study your word. Lord, we're thankful for all that you have revealed to us. We ask that you would equip us this morning, that we would be informed as to how to best read and study and understand your scripture so that we might be transformed, knowing how to believe and apply uh, the truth of scripture. So God, give us help. Pray that you'd give us alert minds and eager hearts. In Christ's name, amen. So we've been um, in this series reviewing various books of the Bible now for, I should have looked at the calendar, but it's been over a year. And now we have arrived at Revelation. And for some reason, the other teachers, the other guys in this class, said that they would love for me to do Revelation, that they were more than happy to share and allow me to cover this book. And I don't know if this will excite you or make you groan, but there's no way we're going to be able to do it in one week. So this is Revelation Part 1. My plan, as of now, we'll see how this plan unfolds. The plan is to look at the background of Revelation, um, the authorship, the date, some of the key interpretive issues, and then next week, look at an outline of Revelation and actually overview the contents. There's just so many things that we have to set up before we can get to walking through the content. I had to do that today. And I guess the question in my mind is whether or not we'll be able to cover all the content next week. Um, this could easily be its own year-long series. I don't intend to do that. So we're going to plan on two, maybe three at the most weeks. Um, again, aiming for two. But we're in Revelation. <clears throat> he begins, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I think no other, bi- no other book in the Bible probably gets as much interest and attention as the book of Revelation. Even many unbelievers are pretty intrigued by the contents of this book. There's shocking and otherworldly events and characters in this climactic finale to the story of Scripture. But there's, at the same time, perhaps no book in the Bible that generates as much confusion as the book of Revelation. Sometimes, this isn't literally true, but it feels like there's as many interpretations of Revelation as there are verses in Revelation. Maybe some of you guys have have experienced some of that. You know what I'm talking about. And because of all this, although there are some people who obsess over this book, it's their favorite book of the Bible, they're always studying Revelation, always talking about Revelation, for many others, I think people tend to avoid it because of all the confusion. So what shall we do? What should be our approach to the book of Revelation? 2 Timothy 3.16, a verse we read often here and will continue to read often, says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says all scripture, all of it. And that includes the book of Revelation. It includes the visions in Revelation. It includes the symbols in Revelation. It includes the numbers in Revelation. It includes the various interpretive challenges in Revelation. All of it is valuable because it is God's inspired word. 
And so we dare not dismiss it and say, well, you know, there's a lot of different uh, ideas, many different interpretations. It's hard to understand. So we're just going to sort of leave that out of our diet as a church or even leave that out of our diet as Christians in our read, reading and our study. No, revelation is useful and even necessary to the growth and maturity of our faith. So we must not neglect revelation. I hope that if nothing else over the next two weeks, you are encouraged to take up and read this book. Um, no matter how much of it you're able to understand, to read it in faith, believing that it's valuable and that there's blessing there. The book itself in the early verses invites us to partake of this blessing. If you look in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, indicating there's a response of obedience that comes with the reading of this book. So there's a, a blessing here for us. So brothers and sisters, we must take up and read and hear the message that John records and respond to it with obedience and faith. So let's talk about the title of this book and the author. Unlike some of the other books we've been studying, this one doesn't carry the name of the author or the name of the recipient as the book. It's called Revelation, which comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which you can probably hear the word apocalypse in there. Um, and this word apocalypsis has the idea of uncovering or unveiling. It has the idea of disclosure, revealing something that had been previously concealed. We have a, a big veil over here, this big curtain that hangs on half of the room. I could pull that back and show you the stacks of chairs and all the fascinating things that are back there. That's the idea of revelation. And this word is used throughout the New Testament to refer to, refer to spiritual truths, uh, we see this um, in the writings of Paul where he talks about the mystery uh, that has now been revealed. And he's speaking about the gospel, exactly how it all fits together. And that the Gentiles get to participate in the new covenant. It's this thing that was previously not clearly seen, but has now been revealed or disclosed. It's the same word. This same word is used to refer to um, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God taking on flesh, coming here to be seen and to be heard. And this same word refers to the return of Christ, to the second coming. And so it's a fitting description of this book. It's the revelation, if you look in verse 1, of Jesus Christ, which on the one hand means that this is, yes, it is from Jesus. Jesus is the one revealing this to John. But even more specifically, this is about Jesus it is revealing what Jesus is going to do, how Jesus is going to triumph, how Jesus Christ's glory is going to be manifested at the end of the age. So that's the title of this book, Revelation. It's the revelation specifically of Jesus Christ. The author of this epistle, um, according to verse 1, is John. And this is the Apostle John, one of the twelve, the member of that inner circle of three. Remember, Jesus was always taking with him Peter, James, and John. That was his inner circle of, of most trusted friends and the disciples he invested most in. And so this is the John who receives this revelation. He also wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote those three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We've just recently looked at those in this class and some people have challenged whether John was actually the author of this book. And if you get into biblical studies, you'll know that almost every book of the Bible, it seems like, there's somebody who says, I know it says it's written by this person, but I think it's written by someone else. That's a pretty common uh, discussion, common argument. And the reason that some people think this wasn't written by the Apostle John 
Um, there's several reasons, but one of them is because the Greek vocabulary of this book and the style of writing is different than the Gospel of John and those three epistles written by John. But I really don't think that's a deal breaker um, for a couple reasons. One of them being, if you saw all the things that John saw, do you think you'd maybe use some words that you'd never used before when you were just talking about normal church matters? Probably. Probably, because the nature of what he's writing about, talking about, is so different than the substance and content of those other books. That's not a deal breaker that says, John couldn't have written this because the language and style is different. It's a different genre of writing, and he's writing about a different topic, a different subject. So that need not um, scare us away from believing the very simple view that this is written by John the Apostle. Um, Also, this was written by John at the end of his life. He's an old man. And people's writing styles can evolve and change over time. And people are capable of writing in different voices. Um, for instance, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. And let's say that you know, 2,000 years from now, somebody picks up a copy of Mere Christianity and a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And they say, these are very different. Well, well yeah, he's writing to different audiences about different subjects. And one's a novel that's fiction, and one's not. Like, they're, they're different things. So authors are able to write differently. So that's not a reason to believe that John didn't write it. Um, the reason why some people want to say John didn't write it, as we'll see later, is because then it'll fit their interpretive scheme better. And it'll help them say it's coming from a different time period, which allows them to match up some of the things in Revelation to fit their scheme. Um, but the straightforward view... And the view that was um, held by the early church fathers and most of the church throughout history is that John wrote it. Um, I think positive reasons to believe why John wrote it, why it was John, John the Apostle and not a different John, is that there's actually several similarities, key similarities between Revelation and the other writings of John. Only John refers to Jesus as the Word. That happens in uh, John's Gospel, and it happens in Revelation. Only John refers to Jesus as the Lamb. And as the witness. Um, Also, Revelation quotes from Zechariah 12.10. And John quotes from Zechariah 12.10 in his other writings. And in both of those places, he doesn't quote the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. He sort of uses his own translation. I mean, he was someone who knew Hebrew fluently. And he he gives his own translation. And it's different than the Septuagint. But in both places, those translations match each other perfectly. A little clue that this is probably John, the apostle, writing. The same one who wrote... The, the gospel that bears his name, and those three epistles. And then finally, many church fathers affirmed John as the author. And um, the earliest, I believe it was Irenaeus, um, who affirmed that John wrote this at the end of the reign of Domitian, which is a, a Roman emperor. Um, Irenaeus was alive at the same time. He, he would have overlapped with some people still living who would have been among the original readers of this book. So we have very early testimony to the fact that John the Apostle wrote this book. So that's the view that we will take, and we are in good company taking that view. So when did John write this? I know a lot of times we, we briefly kind of throw out, here's a date when this book was written. We don't spend much time on it, but when studying the book of Revelation, it's very important to nail down when this book was written. Again, as we'll see later, when this book was written massively affects how you interpret the events that are being described in this book. Uh, and the best position is that John wrote this book at the end of the first century. So probably between 94 and 96 AD. Again, this is at the end of Domitian's reign. And this is based, again, especially on the testimony of Irenaeus. 
And the reason that this is important, that it was written in uh, the mid to late 90s, at the end of the first century, is that if John wrote this in the 90s, then that means he would have written this book after a very, very significant event. Somebody tell me what that would be. 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? Jerusalem was destroyed. So that's very important to how you interpret this book. Rome came in in 70 AD, crushed a Jewish uprising, flattened the temple, killed a ton of people, and you'll see why that matters, that that's history and not future um, when we get to interpreting the interpretive schemes we'll cover in a few minutes. Um, So we can safely assume a late date for this writing um, for this reason. I think one of the best reasons um, to believe this is because when we consider the letters to the seven churches in the first few chapters... Um, We see this in in chapters 2 and chapter 3 that John writes to these seven different churches. Um, When we look at his letters to those churches, and we think about who those people are, the cities that they're in, those churches had a history of being strong. If you go back to the mid-60s, right before 70 AD, uh, when Paul was still traveling and ministering as an itinerant missionary, those churches were strong. But now John writes to them, and they have some serious issues. And among those issues is this group called the Nicolaitans, and we'll, we'll touch on them next week. Though that group appears nowhere in the earlier writings in the New Testament. None of the other epistles deal with this group by name. We don't see them in the book of Acts. So 40s, 50s, 60s, they're nowhere to be seen. But all of a sudden, John is writing about this group. It makes it seem very likely that there's been some time that's gone by that's allowed this error, this, this group of false teachers and their, their followers to sort of spring up and gain influence. So much influence that an apostle himself would write to deal with them and call them out by name. So that sort of hints to us that this was written later, not earlier um, during the time when Paul was traveling and ministering. Um, the Nicolaitans are the new kids on the block. They, they aren't found earlier in the New Testament. Now, there's other reasons as well. We could get into some nuts and bolts um, and, and even think about uh, how John would have written differently if, if the destruction of Jerusalem was still future. Um, some of those things are an argument from silence. But uh, the traditional view, and I think the best view, is that John wrote after the destruction of Jerusalem, towards the end of the first century. Again, Irenaeus writes this down for us, and we can, I think, trust his testimony. Um, John writes, from the island of Patmos, according to verse 9 in Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's writing from Patmos where he had been banished for preaching the word. And I think I have a map up here. This is sort of the modern map, Google Maps. So you can see this is modern-day Turkey. And off to the west coast, there's a ton of islands. If you zoom in more, there's even more small islands. Patmos was a small island off the coast. And the Roman authorities took John, whom they understood to be a troublemaker because of his influence in his teaching. And church history tells us that they boiled him in oil, but he survived. So they threw him on this island and left him out there by himself. So you imagine this old man with the scars from, from his persecution But he is burdened for the churches that he formerly ministered to. If you go to the next slide, 
Um, this one looks like it was drawn with a crayon, but it shows a little bit of relation to where the, the cities are. So John was ministering in and from Ephesus. You see where Ephesus is in relation to Patmos. That was his home base of ministry. And he likely not only had a ministry there in Ephesus, but as an apostle, he had authority to minister to all those churches in the region and had, had, had sort of an overseeing type ministry. So those are the seven churches that he writes to. And that they would have been the first recipients of this letter. And John had a strong connection with all these people. So he's an old man. He's the last man standing among the apostles. The last of the 12. All of the others have been martyred by this point. And John was just a tough old bird and made it through the oil. He's still kicking. And God has one more task for him. In verse 11. Well, verse 10, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Pretty uh, significant Sunday morning for John that he would never forget. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So this is his task, to write what he sees. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the interpretive challenges. I think I have these on the next slide. Interpretive challenges to studying the book of Revelation. Um, why is Revelation so hard to interpret? Why are there so many diverging views and understandings of this book? Well, I think, first of all, we have to understand the genre of Revelation because it's not simple historical narrative. It's different than reading Acts. It's different even than reading Matthew or Mark. It's different than reading 1 Samuel or 2 Kings or Exodus. Um, it, is a, it is apocalyptic literature. Um, the way that John writes, the language that he uses, the things he's describing, this is not simple history. It's not simple narrative. This apocalyptic vision um, we see four visions that are filled with various symbols. And visions can be hard to interpret. Symbols mean something. They're not empty of meaning, but the challenge is to figure out what those, simple, what those symbols refer to, what they're symbolizing. They're there for a reason, but it can be a challenge. In Revelation, we find creatures, monsters. We find a dragon, these various beasts. And it can be a challenge to interpret um, what's going on. We find horses and trumpets and bowls and scrolls and the end of the world. And it's difficult to interpret and sort of put everything together because of the genre. It's apocalyptic literature. And the way we interpret apocalyptic literature, while we still preserve our method, our historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutic, that's the, the method that, that we embrace, even applying that method to images and symbols and numbers and visions and future prophecy, it can be challenged to put everything together. Uh, again, the challenge lies in understanding what the symbols mean, how they fit together. There's also a lot of numbers in this book, um, and that's sort of um, descriptive of the content. We find seven churches, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven letters, seven spirits, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, Seven heads with crowns, seven angels, seven vials. The number seven is prominent throughout this book. There's 12 tribes. There's 12,000 from each tribe. There's 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12 fruits on the tree of life. There's four beasts, four horsemen, four bound angels at the four corners of the earth. So figuring out the numbers, the symbols, 
The visions is a challenge. And it's also difficult because it's a book of prophecy. It looks to the future. And looking to the future and understanding not just what's going to happen, but especially how it's all going to happen, that's always a challenge. And it was even a challenge for the Old Testament saints when they received prophecy of the future. For instance, um, in 1 Peter 1, 10, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Um, Anytime you're looking to the future, even when you fully believe and carefully study the prophecies, it can still be a challenge to really land and understand confidently exactly how it fits together. I think a great illustration of this is John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus, and John believed. I mean, he preached that Jesus was the lamb, that he's not worthy to untie his shoes, but he, he sent messengers saying, are you the one to come? Are we supposed to wait for another? There's a little bit of uncertainty there because he's dealing with the fulfillment of prophecy, and when you look to the future... Sometimes it's difficult to be absolutely certain about every detail of the fulfillment of those prophecies. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Um, Paul speaks specifically of seeing Christ and knowing him, but the reality is there's some things that we have partial knowledge of. Now, we, don't, we need to be humble about that, but I don't want to jump over into the ditch on the other side and say we can't have any knowledge, we can't have any certainty. No, that's not true. Um, again, blessed are those who read and who keep what is written. It's given to us for a reason. We can understand and know and believe and obey. Um, but there is a, le- a level of difficulty, in, and maybe we don't get all the answers we want sometimes. But God has given us what he wants us to know. So interpreting this book can be difficult because of the genre, the symbols, the prophetic future nature of it. But it's also difficult to us, and I think more so because of this reason, because Revelation so heavily draws from the Old Testament. One scholar argues that out of 404 verses, 278 of them contain references to the Old Testament. That's a lot of usage of Old Testament language, Old Testament symbols, Old Testament themes. Um, The UBS Greek New Testament, which is a a scholarly um, edition of the New Testament, cites over 500 Old Testament references in connection with Revelation. And here's why this poses a challenge. Our generation is often sadly unfamiliar with the Old Testament scriptures. We have, you know, only a a barely adequate knowledge of its message on on perhaps a surface level. We know the key stories and the key promises, but its themes, its imagery, its emphases are sometimes a little bit lost on us. Um, One, because it's harder to understand. One, because it, it seems to, at times, less directly apply to us than the New Testament. Also, because it's just a lot bigger. I mean, if you take your Bible... And go to Matthew and, you know, split it right there. I mean, there's a lot less here and a lot more here. So it's just harder for us to have a solid grasp on the Old Testament. Um, And because of that, when Revelation uses all these Old Testament um, metaphors and Old Testament symbols and connects to Old Testament prophecies, sometimes that goes right over our heads. And we're just saying, I'm not sure what he's talking about. But keep in mind, John, the author, um, was a Jew 
was a faithful Hebrew believer, and he would have been saturated with the Old Testament. He would have grown up with it. He would have known it inside and out. And so to him, he probably was very excited as he wrote these things because he saw a lot more of what was going on there. So one reason, I've had a couple of people in this church even say, hey, we should do a series on Revelation on Sunday morning. And I've said, I would love to do that. I'm honestly a little bit intimidated because it's a challenge, but also I don't think this is the right season in our ministry. Because if you, if you jump right to Revelation without really studying everything that comes before, it's sort of like jumping into the final scene of a movie that's maybe the final movie of a trilogy and you've not seen the first two movies or even the first two-thirds of the third movie. You don't really understand all the plot lines that are coming together. You, don't, you haven't seen the character development along the way. Um, I know there's a couple people here who like the, those Marvel movies, the superhero movies. I've not really seen hardly any of them. If I were to watch the last one where all those superheroes come together, I, I probably wouldn't appreciate it or enjoy it just because I haven't been tracking the story all the way through. Sometimes when we read Revelation, it's like that. So we need to study Genesis. We need to study Daniel. We need to study Ezekiel. We need to study the kingdom of Israel. We need to understand the prophets. We need to study Jesus and and his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. And then when we get to Revelation, there will be a lot more aha moments. The light bulbs will come on because we'll see the dots connecting. So we would be greatly helped to read Revelation if we would saturate ourselves with the stories and images and themes in the Old Testament. Um, If we don't, it's sort of like trying to build the roof on a house before you've laid the foundation and framed up the walls. So studying the rest of Scripture will help us to understand Revelation because Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. When you start reading the Old Testament, you'll see that Genesis tells us of a serpent, the one who's called the great dragon in Revelation. Genesis tells us about a tree of life. And then Revelation tells us about this tree of life and the new heaven and earth. Genesis tells us about an epic story of creation, and then Revelation tells us about this epic story of recreation. The book of Daniel tells us about beasts with horns and eyes, and so does Revelation. Daniel tells us about thrones and the the destiny of nations, Gog and Magog, and Revelation does as well. Ezekiel tells us about the glorious splendor of God's throne room and the magnificent creatures that are there and the sights and the sounds. And then you get to Revelation and you see the same scene. Ezekiel tells us of a river. And Revelation does as well, a river flowing from the throne. Ezekiel tells us of a temple. And Revelation describes this temple-like scene as well. So if you don't get the Old Testament, you won't understand Revelation because perhaps you've only seen the trailer. You've only seen the little shortened version and you've not gotten the whole picture. Um, So again, if you want to understand Revelation, if you're one of those people who gets really excited about this book and wants to study this book, read the Old Testament through about eight times in a row and then jump to Revelation and all of these light bulbs are going to start coming on. Um, So immerse yourself in the Old Testament to better understand the New Testament. But that's one of the reasons it's hard for many people to read and understand it is because we don't have a good enough grasp of the Old Testament. So let's talk about the interpretive approach. And this will be the last thing we really have time to spend on today. Perhaps the main reason why there are so many divergent interpretations of Revelation is that people come to the text with a different set of assumptions. People come to the book of Revelation with a different set of tools. They're working based on a different set of interpretive rules. 
a different set of approaches. Your method of interpreting scripture is called hermeneutics. It's a big word, I know, but it's an important word. Hermeneutics is, is the discipline, the methodology of interpreting scripture. And you can have good hermeneutics or bad hermeneutics. You can have hermeneutics that operate on one set of assumptions and principles and methods or hermeneutic that operates on a different set of assumptions and methods and approaches. Um, so your method for interpreting Revelation, your set of assumptions and your, your methodology is going to determine how you interpret this challenging book. There's four basic approaches to interpreting Revelation. And this is a little bit simplistic because some people will mix and match. Some people will draw a little bit from these different approaches depending on where they're at in the book of Revelation. But there's four basic approaches. So if you're taking notes, this would be good to jot down these four basic approaches. The first is called preterist. It's the preterist position. And this is an interpretive approach. It's a certain methodology, certain assumptions. The preterist position on the book of Revelation believes that the book of Revelation is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So this is why the dating is important here, Okay. So preterists would believe that this was written earlier, before the fall of Jerusalem. And it was, it was talking about the fall of Jerusalem, or that it was written shortly after, but was referring back to it. There's, there's some who believe both. So the preterist position would see Revelation as a tract for its time, that it's basically Jewish in nature. It's about a Jewish event in a Jewish city. And it was all about those contemporary events in the first century. So it's all about the first century. So for us to read Revelation from a preterist position means we're looking at everything and pointing back at things that already happened, specifically around the, dis- the destruction of Jerusalem, and trying to match everything up. That's the preterist position. So very little, if any, of Revelation is still future if you're reading it through a preterist lens. So they would see it as, as being a, mostly about past events. Uh, so that's the preterist approach, um, and that uh, is a view that some people hold today and is a view that has been held um, throughout history at times, and it's one you need to be aware of. That's the preterist approach. A second approach is called the historicist approach, historicist, and you can sort of hear you know, in history in the name of it. It kind of gives you a hint of what it's about. Um, many of the reformers held this view, uh, men like uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther and others, And they saw Revelation as describing not just the first century, but describing all of church history up until that point. So they would try to take the visions and symbols and political entities in in Revelation and connect it to things going on in their day. So if you read Luther or Calvin or some of these other reformers talking about Revelation, they'll, they'll be connecting everything to the Catholic Church. They'll be connecting everything to Rome or to various nations in Europe, and to things that had happened throughout church history even, the breakup of the Roman Empire and what happened afterwards and different things like that. So they wouldn't say it's just Jewish and it's about the first century. They would say it's about church history, but it's still things that happened in the past or are happening in their, in their current moment. So this is why, for example, many of the Reformers, especially Luther, saw the Pope as the Antichrist. They interpreted, that's how they interpreted Revelation. And what's kind of ironic is that many Catholics believed Luther was the Antichrist. You know, one good turn uh, deserves another. Um, And that's because both Roman Catholics and Luther, who was Catholic, 
until he started stepping away. They were both operating on the same set of interpretive principles. They had the same hermeneutic. So Luther had time to reform his views on justification. And if he had lived longer, I think he would have kept reforming and maybe even changed his hermeneutics. But he was still kind of, he still had that Roman Catholic um, hermeneutic when he approached Revelation. So he applied everything to church history. The persecution would be the tribulation. Um, the Antichrist would be the Pope. So he's trying to match everything up in terms of church history. Um, so the early uh, Roman persecutions, the Dark Ages, the medieval times, the Roman Catholic Church, and their opposition to the gospel. That's the historicist view. And some still hold that view, although it's, it's less popular today. A third view would be what's called the idealist view. And this approach doesn't try to connect everything in Revelation to historical events. They would say that that's, that that's the, the wrong approach. And this is more of an allegorical approach, more of a spiritual approach. And they would say that, um, that, that Revelation is about ideas, it's about principles, it's about spiritual conditions that really are present and apply in any age. So you can, you can appreciate the intentions of this view because they want to show that revelation was necessary and applicable and immediately relevant for the first readers and also for readers during the Reformation and also for readers today. So they would say that for those during you know, the early church, that first century, that this book would have given them what they need to understand the spiritual battles that are going on, to understand persecution, and to be encouraged that Christ is returning and his kingdom will prevail. And the same thing for the reformers, as they're battling against the Roman Catholic Church, and they're experiencing persecution, and as the gospel is starting to go out in reinvigorated form, that they should hold strong and believe that, that suffering for the gospel is worth it, and Christ will overcome, and his kingdom will prevail, and, and so they would try to match everything up there, and then they do the same thing today. They would say that today, in our secular age, with all of the opposition against us, there's a spiritual war going on. There are significant powers that are opposed to us. And as we face persecution and opposition, be encouraged because Christ will prevail. And so I would say amen to those truths, but we can get there a different way. Um, I don't agree with them that nothing in Revelation is is referring to specifics, that it's all just sort of this allegory of themes and ideas that are always going on throughout every day of the church. Um, For those who take the idealist approach, Revelation becomes a one-size-fits-all description of basic spiritual struggles and dynamics that are always in play. And while this seems to be practical and applicable, it becomes so flexible that it almost loses meaning because things just kind of, I I don't know, there's no no substance to it in that sense. So this this is probably the most popular approach or, or or a lot of people today will sample from this approach. They may land on interpreting some things, but they often borrow from this interpretive approach. And then there's a fourth and final approach to Revelation, and this is the one that, that we would hold to at this church, and that's called the futurist, futurist approach. This futurist approach uses a hermeneutic, again, that we would call the literal, historical, grammatical method. We would believe that um, Revelation means what John meant it to mean, that meaning lies with the author, um, and that our interpretation of it, if we were to write it out, the Apostle John should be able to pick that up and go, yeah, that's what I was talking about. That's what I meant, that meaning lies there, and that these, there are symbols, there are allegorical things in Revelation, but they all refer to something concrete. Um, and for the futurist position, 
we would see Revelation as being chronological and linear. Chronological and linear. And I, I didn't mention this with some of the other views, but some of the other views don't see, don't see Revelation as being chronological and linear. They see it as looking at the same thing from various ang- angles. For example, we'll get to this next week, but there are the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, and, you know, these, and they would say that, that they're actually the same thing, just being described from various angles. Whereas we would see them as being seven new sets of new things, and it's linear and progressive. Um, the, the theme or, or the word that some people use to describe this approach of it not being linear would be called recapitulation. So, for example, there's two big battles at the end of Revelation. And those who don't hold the futurist approach would see both of those battles as being the same battle, just described two different times from two different vantage points. And to their credit, Scripture does do that sometimes. In Genesis 1, we have a story of creation. And in Genesis 2, we have the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. That's not two different stories. It's the same story, but he's sort of rewinding the tape and zooming in specifically on the creation of man. Um, So recapitulation does occur in Scripture, but I don't think that's what's happening um, for much of Revelation. We would believe Revelation is linear and chronological. Um, And so the symbols refer to real events, but we would hold that these events are largely still future um, obviously, the, the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 4 are historical. Um, but starting in, um, in chapter 4 of Revelation, we would see that that starts describing things that have not yet happened. So not things that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. Not simply referring to what's happened throughout church history, but referring to things that will happen, things in the future. Um, so it holds that most of Revelation is prophetic And it describes the events leading up to and surrounding the return of Christ. And this is the view that we take. And there's a lot more to arguing for this method that we don't have time to get into today. Maybe someday we'll do a hermeneutics class in this this Sunday school class. That would be great. Um, But just to describe the four different approaches, this is why you might pick up a book on Revelation and then pick up another book on Revelation, and they seem to be coming out of different universes. It's because people come to the book with different lenses, different assumptions, different interpretive rules and principles that they're operating by. And that's why two people can come to the same text and say totally different things about it. And again, that's why this book, it can be a challenge to, to read and interpret. So if you are going to study Revelation and read it on your own, take the first couple chapters as describing something that was happening in John's day. Hey, these churches have issues. I'm going to write to them as an apostle because Jesus said, write this to the churches. And then um, the rest of the book, after those letters to the churches, read that as descriptive of what is coming in the future. Chapters 4 and forward, we would hold to as being future, not descriptive of things that have already happened, um, either in the first century or throughout church history. So if we adopt that approach, that set of interpretive principles, what is sort of the rudder for our ship? What is the theme and the purpose of this book? Um, That's another reason people kind of get lost in Revelation is they forget what's the main point. So the main point of Revelation, the theme and purpose that we must keep in mind as we sort through all these details is that John writes very simply to assert the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. Jesus will win. 
Jesus does reign and will reign. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the victor. And his plan for his creation and his people will be accomplished. So it is about Jesus Christ. Revelation is about the glory of Christ. It's about his victorious accomplishment of both salvation and judgment. It's about the establishing of his kingdom, the fulfillment of God's promises, and the resolution of the entire storyline of the Bible, all of which exalts and magnifies Christ. So as you read Revelation, look for Jesus. Don't look for current events. Don't look for secret prophetic insights. Don't look with fear and worry about what's going to happen to the church. Look for Christ. And if you keep Christ at the center as you read the book, whether or not you can figure out all the details, you will be encouraged. Your faith will be strengthened, and you will experience the blessing that is promised in verse 3 of chapter 1. Because you'll have a bigger view of Christ, it'll strengthen your faith, give you confidence and joy. If you check out, again, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's this amazing vision of Christ that happens in the early parts of the book. He says that he's the Alpha and Omega, the one who is to come, the Almighty. This is about his Glory. So if you're going to read Revelation, step one, read the Old Testament and understand it. That's really simple, right? Go do that. Um, and then secondly, keep Christ at the center. Look for him. Look for his glory. Look for what this shows us about Christ. If you lose Jesus, or if you lose Jesus because you're focusing on all the details, you're going to miss the forest for the trees. But if you read Revelation to see Jesus, you'll be encouraged, blessed, and strengthened in your faith. But if you're looking at everything except Jesus, you're going to be confused. Um, so let me just encourage you. If you're intimidated by this book, don't be. Um, don't let confusion over some of the obscure details um, keep you from seeing the big truths that everybody agrees on. Whether you take the preterist or the historist, uh, historicist or um, the idealist view or the futurist view, when you get to chapter 21, 22, we all agree Jesus wins. New heaven and new earth. Resurrection, glory, and rest. And it's beautiful. So we can all agree on those things. So don't miss track. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose track of that. Christ reveals his glory in Revelation to inspire worship and obedience and faith and faithfulness, you know, to persevere to the end. He gives us this book to give hope and comfort and joy and courage because our world seems like it's falling apart. This tells us the good news of how it's going to end. And finally, he gives us this book of Revelation to give the final word. This is the final prophecy. This book completes God's revelation of all we need to know. At the end, it says, don't add anything to it and don't take anything away. This is the last and final installment of this book that we have been given. So let me encourage you, read Revelation humbly, read it expectantly, and read it with gratitude that God has revealed to us the glory of Christ and how the story is going to end. Um, we are out of time. I had hoped to open this up for questions. Um, maybe bring your questions next week. No promises I can answer them, but I'd love to hear your, your feedback. Um, we are out of time, so let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the book of Revelation. I, I ask that you would give us um, eager and humble and expectant hearts as we read it. Show us the glory of Christ and strengthen our faith to endure. Amen.